I have uh, long encouraged Christians to systematically read through their Bibles, not just read their Bibles. Because if I'd say, you should read your Bible, I know what you're going to do. You're going to read the Psalms. You're going to read Genesis. You're going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of the epistles. But you're going to skip the parts that may not be you know, as immediately applicable. So we've done some through the Bible challenges here in our church and encourage people in, in a year, for example, to start in Genesis and you know, read X number of chapters right through to Revelation. And everyone who's done that, there've been many, many people that have done that, have been blessed by that. I've often said, what you don't wanna do is stand before God one day, having been a Christian, maybe for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and say, you know what? I never actually got around to reading the entire Bible. Wouldn't that be kind of weird to stand before God one day? I mean, it's one thing if you become a Christian and the Lord takes you home a week later, but if you've walked with the Lord for years and years and years and years, and you've never on one occasion read Leviticus or Numbers or Malachi or Haggai or some of these more obscure books, it would be a little bit weird. And it might even reveal that you don't actually believe that all scripture is profitable for our training in righteousness. All scripture is. Now, I do understand that when you're reading through story, accounts, like like in Genesis, and you get into Exodus, and then all of a sudden you're in Leviticus, and you're like, this is not as exciting. I like reading stories. I like reading about Joseph and his coat of many colors. And I like reading about creation, of course, and the Exodus. But now I'm, I'm into these endless litany of laws. I don't really know what the purpose of them are. They're kind of dry and repetitious. I'll just skip forward to maybe 1 Samuel. I understand the temptation. But when you're reading through the Bible systematically, I would encourage you, do not skip the dry passages of the Bible because they have a purpose to them. And Leviticus in particular, which highlights many of the laws, Deuteronomy has laws as well, but Leviticus is chocked full of them. These laws have a purpose. In fact, as we study the book of Galatians, this is why I'm starting here, as we study the book of Galatians, you, you don't even have the capacity to fully appreciate what Paul is saying to the Galatian church if you've never read Leviticus. It's just over your head. You're not gonna appreciate it. Because Leviticus and the Levitical laws do things like they highlight the holy standards of God. When you're reading through them, you're like, man, God really isn't a pushover. I mean, he really does expect perfection. He's crossed every T and dotted every necessary I. Secondly, when you read those laws, it reveals our own weakness. It's like, man, I I don't think I could ever measure up to all these, these poor Israelites. And God's like, you're right. Let me tell you about grace. So until you've read the law and had that encounter, the grace isn't as sweet. You can sing amazing grace much better if you've read Leviticus recently. Third, it protects us. The laws protect us. It protects nations from unboundaried sin. When nations toss law, divine law, they go crazy. Things become chaotic. So we often say there's no throwaway lines in the Bible. There's no filler material. The book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, the laws are essential for us to read 
and understand, and dare I say, experience. Let them sink in. So if we're ever confused when we're reading the Bible, and we're in Leviticus, we're like, I don't think this is relevant. I don't see the point of it. I'm not even sure why this is here. Why didn't Jesus retract the law, throw it out of the Bible? If we ever approach the scriptures that way, three things, all three or one of these three things must be true of us. If we're ever reading the Bible and we're like, I don't see the point, I don't agree with this or it's irrelevant. Number one, you're either misreading it. A lot of people misread the law. They don't understand its purpose. Or secondly, you have inadequate information to understand its purpose or context. So Galatians helps us to understand its purpose and context. Or third, your humanness, your sinfulness is limiting your understanding of the text. So many Christians go through their whole lives, they never read the law because they've been told or they think or they assume it's not relevant. I just like reading John or I like reading Matthew or I like being in the Psalms or Proverbs even, but la, 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 that's, that's, that's irrelevant. That's past. So there's much confusion in the Christian church even about the relationship of law and grace. And what we're trying to do in the book of Galatians is to bring clarity to that. Galatians is about correcting the confusing relationship that people often perceive between the law and grace. So you'll know there's four options that people have proposed for the relationship between the law of the, uh, the law and grace. Some would say, and this is erroneous by the way, well, if you want salvation, what you need is you need faith in Christ's finished work and you need effort, works, law. And if you bring those two together, God will be like, all right, you're trusting in my son and you're a pretty good boy, you're obeying my law, so I'm gonna let you into heaven. That's false, but it is preached by many in the broader quote unquote Christian church. Secondly, others would say, well, it's, it's faith versus work. So in other words, some people have law, some people have faith. They're not really, you know, they're incongruous. They don't really match up, but you know, maybe God's a, a both and kind of guy, or maybe they're always gonna be in, in competition. Some people will get there by faith. Some people will get there by works. Kind of a, a non-position almost. Others will say, no, it's, it's works before faith. So you have to have faith, but you sort of got to get your life together in advance. So clean up your act, start going to church, get baptized, you know, read your Bible, and then maybe at some point you'll get faith or put your faith in Christ and God will reward you with salvation as a result. But the Bible teaches us that salvation, justification, conversion, is by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And once that relationship is established, then a person necessarily and inevitably, I might add, starts to engage in good works in keeping God's laws and keeping God's principles and keeping God's word as a natural expression of the salvation that's been granted them by God's grace and God's grace exclusively. So we could say it this way. If we're reading Galatians chapter three, verse 10, through to four, verse seven, which we're going to today, 
in Christian conversion, it is, here's the formula, faith without works. That's in Christian conversion. But in Christian living, it's faith resulting in works. Is that, is that helpful? So in conversion, faith alone, in Christ alone, you cannot in any way, shape, or form contribute to eternal life. It's not your efforts that Christ rec- God recognizes. It's the efforts of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And when that happens and you're like, man, I'm just going to trust fully and wholly in Jesus Christ. Well, as a response, Lord, I want to worship you now. I want to pray. I want to read scripture. I want to be charitable. I want to be forgiving. I want to be pure-minded. I want to be righteously in, righteous in my uh, intentions. So as we look at Galatians, what Galatians tries to help us to do is to see the relationship of faith and law in human history. So we're starting off here, just we're going to now go to the text and we're going to see if I'm right. We're going to see if I've, what I've said so far is true and accurate. And sure enough, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we learn very explicitly that faith alone makes you righteous. Faith alone makes you righteous. So listen carefully to Paul's teaching here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. How many? What percentage of people does it identify there? All of us. So every single person, if they're relying upon works of the law, does that mean works are bad? No, they're not bad. Let's not think of the law as bad. It's good. But if we're relying upon our ability to fulfill God's commandments in order to make us righteous, we're actually cursed. That's a strong word. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the idea there is if in theory you could actually perfectly obey every single law of God, then you would be saved. But how many people are capable of doing that? Zero, except for Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not, it's not saying the law is bad. A lot of people, oh, law is bad. No, it's not bad. But the fact that you try to fulfill God's laws and none of us ever successfully do it means we're cursed. We're damned. We have a problem that we can't solve or resolve. Now it is evident, this is verse 11. Now it is evident that no one, that's strong language as well, is justified before God by the law for, another quote from scripture, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Folks, this does not mean that we should curse the law. This does not mean that we should fall into the trap of antinomianism. Anti against nomian, namas, law. We're not anti-law. We should seek to fulfill God's laws. We should seek to follow God's principles, commandments, teachings. We understand that some of the law is ceremonial in nature and no longer applies. But I'm just using the word law to refer to God's commandments, God's principles, God's ways, God's methods, God's yeses, God's noes. We should all be striving to obey these things. But if we make the mistake of relying upon them 
in order to get into heaven, in order to access God, we're cursed. Because inevitably, no matter how much you try, and you know what it's like, Lord, I want to be, I want to be kind and loving today. And then someone cuts you off in traffic. We all fall short of our own ideals, much less God's ideals. No one is made righteous by obedience to the law. That didn't happen under the old covenant. It didn't happen before the old covenant, and it doesn't happen after the old covenant. So if someone says to you, oh, that was the age of law. People were made righteous by God in the old covenant under the law. No, 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 that's, that's error. The law has always been designed in part to reveal our sinfulness so we have to fall upon God's grace. And this is why the ancient people of Israel would even bring sacrifices, even the really, really righteous ones, they would bring sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple to be sacrificed as an atonement for their sin, every single one of them. There wasn't a group over here that was like, well, we obey the law perfectly so we don't have to offer sacrifices. Everybody acknowledged that blood needed to be shed for their sins, that atonement needed to be made for their sins. So it's, it's an error. It's an error to suggest that people were justified under the law in one covenant and under grace in the next. Thankfully, our God has always been gracious and loving and merciful. We have, it's, it's, this is an interesting aspect of the Christian life as a worshiper. And a lot of people struggle with this, but I wanna make this very clear. We in and of ourselves do not have the capacity to seek after God. I hope you know that. If you've never read Romans 3, you should read Romans 3. No one seeks after God, no one understands. In Ephesians chapter 2, that's verse 10, by the way, if I didn't mention it. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says you were dead, not injured, not a little off base. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, there's a catch-all word again, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... And you can read about the rest, about God's amazing work. There's a contrast between God's efforts and our sinfulness. Folks, you can never think too lowly of yourself apart from Christ and too highly of, of God. But it's often the opposite. God is sort of like this neutral, he's more or less good, but sometimes he makes my life difficult kind of God. And I have the capacity to choose and follow God whenever I just very well would like to. No, the Bible has a very dark view of humanity until God invades and graciously regenerates and restores. We're worse than we think we are apart from Christ. We really are. But it is that bleak view of humanity that makes grace so amazing for such a wretch like me. And dare I say you. What is the purpose of a law? Well, I've already identified several purposes of a law. It highlights the holiness of God. It puts boundaries on human behavior. It gives us something to aim for after we've been converted, as we seek to be sanctified in Christ. But the law is, is also like a weight. 
that you can't pick up. Now, I know that some of you lift weights, and some of you are, are pretty strong. I know some guys in this room that are pretty strong guys. They can lift their body weight. They can lift their body weight and a half. They're, they're pretty tough guys. They can't catch up to me, but they're pretty tough, <laughs> tough guys. Just kidding, of course. The world record, I, I, I looked this up, the world record bench press, though, is, is incredibly impressive. On, on the world record, I think it was set in 2020, unassisted bench press was 782 pounds. It's incredible, 782 pounds. But whoever, whoever made that incredible lift still doesn't have infinite power. Now, someone could come up and just, okay, you, you can do 782, that's impressive. Try 882. Oh, I can do that. Maybe, maybe in time someone will be able to do that. Okay, let's, let's do 2,000, let's do 5,000. At some point, it's just beyond human, you break your bones. It's beyond human capacity. So we, we all have limits. You, you can be the most impressive weightlifter in the world, but you still have limits. And when your capacity to lift is contrasted with God's, who has infinite power, it's like pff, 782 is nothing. 782 actually isn't, isn't that impressive. So the point is, is that each of us has limits. We have limits to how much we can lift. We have limits to how much we can understand. And we have limits to how much, how many righteous deeds we can consistently perform. And the law is so onerous. There's so many of them, 613 of them, explicit laws just under the old covenant. And then we have numerous principles and implications of that probably well north of a thousand commandments, rules, principles, ideas, case studies in scripture. It's like, I've been a pastor for a long time. I can't even remember them all. I can't even measure up to them all. So what the law does is it forces me to admit that by nature, I'm a sinner. But it doesn't leave me there, wallowing in my own inadequacies. It reveals the goodness of God. Christ became our curse. Look what it says in verse 13 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us, meaning bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The innocent, pure, righteous, sinless God-man bore my sin. So he was cursed. He bore my punishment. He He took my curse upon him so that his righteousness could be exchanged. So he gets my curse and I get his righteousness. It's an amazing transaction that takes place within the gospel. Jesus does so by fulfilling all of the law, never sins. Sometimes he had to correct what the Pharisees thought was the law, but he fulfills the law perfectly. He dies in our place and he extends the righteousness of God beyond the Jewish people to Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. So here we have received a righteousness that is sourced in God. And there are many benefits of it. So once you lock into this and your life is transformed, you're like, oh, so I, I can actually get off the hamster wheel of endlessly trying to appeal my way into God's good graces? Yeah. We don't perform for God, folks. We serve him. We serve him. But we don't perform. It's like, hey, Lord, am I okay with you today? You know? Do you still love me? Am I still your son? We don't have to worry about that 
because we didn't get saved by our efforts. We don't stay saved by our efforts. And we're not recognized by God because of our efforts, but because we've received the sacrifice of Christ. We don't have to worship our dull selves anymore. We get to worship God. The God who graciously did something we couldn't. We now have hope of life beyond the grave. All of us will die. You know the statistics on death. They are rather impressive. We all die. But the amazing thing is, not because of our efforts, we don't have to die wondering where we're going to go. Because it's the death of Christ that has secured our eternal life. This is why Christian funerals, while we mourn the loss of someone we love, and we mourn the consequences of human sin, there's always hope in Christian funerals. I've done funerals for Christians, and I've done funerals for non-Christians. And I can tell you, when I enter into that funeral home or that church, I have a very different attitude. One's dark and gloomy, but the other has a certain excitement attached to it because I know that when we close our eyes in death, we open our eyes in the eternal glory of God. And the resurrection that will happen yet in the future is a sure thing. So in this text, we have this very clear teaching. It's unambiguous. And then we have a parenthesis. As was the case last week, this is in verses 16 to 18, there's a parenthesis. Many people that were reading this would be like, yeah, but... I was sort of told that the Abrahamic covenant, maybe the Mosaic covenant, were more by law works. So Paul corrects that. The Abrahamic covenant does not conflict with the Mosaic covenant is the point he wants to make. Verse 16. Now the promises were made. Now this is interesting. By the way, when you're reading New Testament scripture and you are hearing New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, they would often rely upon rhetorical strategies, meaning verbal argumentative strategies that are kind of foreign to Western thinkers. So if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, there's many different ways that the book, the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament that you wouldn't get away with today if you were writing a theological paper. It's like, oh, that's out of context. Just wait, that's out of context. But if you study the various ways that were acceptable at that time to quote from Old Testament scripture, then it helps you to understand the book of Hebrews. And the argumentation that Paul offers here in some ways falls into that category. So this is what he says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now listen to the argumentation. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So you're like, oh, so the seed promise didn't actually apply to Isaac? It didn't actually apply to Jacob, it didn't actually apply to ethnic Israel because this text says it's actually not them, it's Christ. And the answer to that is yes and no. In prophecy, there's often an immediate fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment or a temporary fulfillment and a fuller fulfillment. So if we're gonna read this passage in light of the rest of scripture, it would be inappropriate for us to say, oh, well, when God made the promise to Abraham to bless his offspring and Sarah had the baby, that wasn't really what they had in mind. Yes, his literal offsprings were blessed, but Christ is the ultimate purpose of that blessing because he's a distant descendant of Abraham. And so the fullness of Christ's blessing is in Abraham. So through spiritual eyes, Christ is the ultimate referent that God had in mind when he blessed Abraham and said, I will multiply your numbers 
as much as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. This is what I mean, the writer goes on to say. The law, which came 430 years afterward, so now he's referring to the Mosaic covenant, the Levitical law, the the, the laws of Deuteronomy given to Moses under the Mosaic covenant, does not nullify or annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. So what's he doing? He's, a, he's identifying sort of the elephant in the room. Well, if, if it's clear that God came to Abraham by faith and faith alone and grace alone and the ultimate one God had in mind to bless the nations would be Christ, then why is it that 430 years later, Moses seems to have forgotten that it's all about law, 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 law. God's like, it's not. You're misunderstanding it. One doesn't nullify the other. Law is good. Law highlights the holiness of God, highlights the depravity of man, puts boundaries on nations and behavior, helps us to learn how to act. It doesn't nullify grace. What you got to figure out is what's the relationship between law and grace. And I think we've already made it explicitly clear in the opening verses of Galatians chapter three, how that all works. We're not anti-law. We're not anti-faith. It's not one or the other. It's each of them has a role. And faith alone is the ticket to salvation. Obedience to God's plans and purposes are an expression of living faith. So under the Mosaic covenant, you still needed to live by faith. Christ is still the ultimate fulfillment, but law also serves a purpose. So what is the point of the law then? What's the point? Well, he asked that question. In verse 19, why then the law? What's the point? Why the law? He answers it. It was added because of transgressions. What are transgressions? Sins. People sin, so God adds the law, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Until Christ comes and fully reveals the redemptive plan to save us by grace through faith alone, the laws in place to limit human sinfulness in response to transgressions, to highlight the holiness of God, and to remind the listener of their need for grace. So it's temporary in that sense until Jesus comes, again, restrains evil, awakens us to grace. And then it says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Do I have to pick one or the other? Are you a law guy or a grace guy? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So we already mentioned that. If in theory you could perfectly obey the laws of God, then you would have life. But we know that's not possible. But scripture imprisoned us under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So on one hand, the law is given to restrain human transgressions. And here the emphasis is we're imprisoned under it. It's like, oh, it's so weighty. It's like just when I thought I had the 10 commandments down, then I discovered there's 500 and or 603 more. It imprisons us under sin so that when Christ comes and he says, I have, uh, my, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm the God man dying for your sin. Faith in me is enough. You're like, 
Literally, thank God for that because it was getting kind of difficult to try to measure up. Parents do, do something similar like to this with their children. So when we, I don't think there's a parent in the room, at least not an experienced parent that would say, if I want the perfect child, I just need to come up with enough household rules and the result is predictable. I'll get a perfect child. No, we, we understand no matter how many laws you foist upon your children, you'll still have an imperfect child at the end of the day. You know that, right? So do you, do you throw up your hands and say, well, I know this child is sinful. I know this child is imperfect. So we're just not going to have any rules? No. You understand that rules are not a guaranteed, are not to guarantee uh, uh, the, res the result that you want, the perfect child. But they're still good. They still restrain human behavior. And when your children fail, a wise parent will step up and they'll have that little conversation like, hey, you know how uh, you're sort of admitting that you often disobey me? Yeah, why do you think that is? And you talk to them about their own human sinfulness and their own need for grace. Uh, the, the rules are still in place, by the way. I still have expectations of you, but the fact that you failed repeatedly is a great open door to talk about grace and mercy and undeserved favor. I used this illustration in my podcast this week. If you're into riding horses, you put a bridle and reins on it. If you are walking your dog in public, you put a collar and leash on it. The collar and the leash or the bridle and the reins don't help the dog or horse to walk, but they restrain it. They, they hold it within a certain position. Or if you decide to take the leash off, you better hope there's a boundary fence. The boundary fence sort of functions as a big old leash. You don't just let your dog run wherever, could bite someone, could run off and get hit, whatever it might be, get itself into trouble. The, 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 the word of God, the laws of God function that way. They, leash, they put a leash on us. They, they boundary our behavior. They pull us back from sin. But they're not the ones, the leash doesn't move us forward unless you're dragging your dog along by a leash. They constrain and restrain human behavior or a leash restrains the behavior of an animal. Here's how the law is described then in verses 24 and 25. It's described as a guardian. Not a parent, but a guardian. Someone that kind of temporarily oversees you to make sure that your behavior is acceptable. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now what that doesn't mean is that faith suddenly, boom, just popped on the scene with Christ because Abraham was justified by faith. But the fullness of faith has been revealed in Christ. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith, speaking to Christians. So it protects us, but it's never enough. Folks, this is critical when we are speaking to culture, speaking to our kids, reinforcing behavioral expectations in our own community of faith. And we're like, hey, you can't do that. You should be doing this. It's really important for us to understand the purpose of rules in the Christian life, the purpose of rules in culture, the purpose of rules in society and 
law, politics as a whole. They're not means of, you know, we, we are a church that often emphasized that, that the modern state needs to submit itself to God's laws. And people are like, oh, you think that that's the gospel? You don't think the gospel's by grace? You think that if you just moralize culture and Christianize culture that everyone's going to heaven? No, no. But every nation's gonna pick a set of laws to govern itself. They're gonna point to some authority to whom they look. And clearly it's not working. When you toss God out, and when your law, many of your civil governmental laws are actually contrary to biblical laws, it's a disaster. So we're not suggesting that if we Christianize culture again, that everybody's going to heaven, but it restrains pedophilia. It restrains murder. It restrains perjury. It restrains theft and on and on and on. So you got to pick a law code to live by. Why wouldn't you pick the one that the creator gave us? This will bless and restrain, bless the nation and restrain evil. But what's, what's, what's fascinating, how many times when you've been talking to an unbeliever about your faith and they're like, I, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to live by all those rules. You heard something like that? God is so oppressive. You know, he says, I can't do this and I can't do that. and I can't do this. It's like, have you ever actually looked at societal laws? The nation of Canada has many, many, many more laws than you'll ever find in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? If you actually took a nation and built it off of God's laws, there would be limited laws with lots of liberty and freedom on the edges. But in the modern state, when God is tossed out, you have to start adding endless, copious amounts of law to try to control human behavior to the point that the modern state that we live in is far more oppressive in terms of the number of laws you have to abide by than, if you, than you'll ever find in the word of God. This is actually pretty light duty stuff here compared to the laws of a state. There, now there's always a reason, right? So I'll just give you one example of where the modern state, because God's laws have largely been set aside, they wanna control every single aspect of your life. So in Ontario, for example, several months ago, there was a law that was passed that says your boss can't call you after work. If you work from nine to five, you know, nowadays a lot of people are working on Zoom or from home and people are kind of getting upset. Like my boss is calling me all times of the night. So our state officials actually came up with a law that said if you have more than 25 employees, you have to have a written policy about how you contact your employees after work hours because you know, they, need, they need their free time. Now, one might say, well, that sounds good because you know, if you're working for someone, the last thing you want is a phone ringing all night long, all through the night, text messages, you feel like. But you think to yourself, do we actually have to have a legislative assembly put a law like that in place? What if we promoted love, sacrifice, being conscientious neighbors. Like there, there are virtues and values that you could promote in a culture that would solve that problem. What about having a conversation with your boss and saying, hey man, like I have a family. I'm completely committed to my job. I'd, I'd love to you know, keep working here, but after five, don't contact me. You know, in a reasonable culture where people 
understood the value of employees and bosses and relationships, that would solve the issue, but not in the modern state. You know, you have to control every single aspect of people's lives. They have to have a record of the cars you own. You ever thought about that? Like, why? You buy a car, and again, I, I'm kind of repeating myself in my podcast, but look at all the rigmarole you have to go through to drive. Look at the amount of money you have to spend to drive. In the modern state, you got to get a beginner's permit. Then you have to get a driver's license, take a test. And then a year or two later, you have to go back and drive the same test again to prove that you, the roads you've already been driving upon for a year or two or three or four, you're still safe to drive on them. And then, then you have to renew that every several years. And then if you buy a car, you have to register it with the government. So they have the VIN number, the code. Then you got to get insurance. And the insurance companies are increasingly becoming controlling. So it's like, hey, you know, we'll give you a discount if you have a breathalyzer on your car. You download this app or, well, how long is it going to take before that's mandatory? I mean, think ahead a little bit. Then you have to get a license plate because them having your VIN number isn't enough so you can be identified in public. And if that's not enough, then you got to get a sticker. Why? You got to get a tag for your dog. Why? Well, we want a record of your dog. For what reason? Well, just because. Well, can I make my own tag? No, no, you need our tag because you're not competent to make a tag for your dog. So you live in this world where there's this endless, copious amounts of bureaucracy. And there might even be good reasons attached to some of these laws. I'm not suggesting that they're all for naught. But after a while, it's like a large percentage of my life is spent crossing the T's and dotting the I's of the endless bureaucracy of the modern state. And people think God's oppressive. If I treated you, if I treated you with as much control and put upon you as many laws and rules as the modern states put, put on the average citizen, you'd rightly call me a cult leader and a legalist. But it's the state that's become the legalist of the day. Everything is legislated. You have to have permit after permit after permit after permit to build a house to the point that many people are like, I'm not even going to bother trying to build a house. It's too much. You build a deck. You need a permit. We got to come look in the hole to make sure it's 42 inches deep, right? Why do you care if my deck rises and falls in the frost? Well, because I care for you. No, you don't. So this is the world within which we live. And fortunately, under the new covenant, it's become explicitly clear that all the laws even that God has are not a means of salvation, will never measure up. We need grace and mercy. I'd like to receive a little more grace and mercy from the modern state, by the way. So as we think through this, there's sort of a sequence of events. We have law. Law reminds us that God is holy. Law reminds us that I am not holy. Law reminds us, therefore, that I need God. The means of receiving grace is through faith. And then that leads to true righteousness. So laws do protect. They are like a guardian. Even under the new covenant, we obey the laws of God because the goodness and love of God demands it. By the way, little, little tip. If you're ever like, I'm not liking this rule, God. I don't see the point of it. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. 
So think about this logically. If God is good, then nothing he will ever legislate will injure you or hurt you because he's good. He has your best interest in mind, also his holiness. He has your best interest in mind. So if you simply obey God, believing that he is good, even if you don't know why he wants you to do A, B, or C, it will always turn out for your benefit. God's not an ogre. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not trying to make your life difficult. This is the fundamental attribute of God that was challenged by the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? No, he, he knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. He's, he's a cosmic killjoy. He's trying to rip you off. You want your eyes to be open knowing good and evil? Don't listen to his rules. What is that? Fundamentally, it's downplaying or denying the goodness of God. I would argue that if you trail, follow the trail in your mind of every sin you ever commit, somewhere along the line, somewhere back in the recesses of your mind, every sin fundamentally hinges on downplaying or denying the goodness of God. Think about that. Apply it to any sin. Somewhere along the line, I've downplayed or denied the goodness of God. I've assumed that God does not have my best interest in mind. I've assumed that God's holding out on me. I'm assuming that God's plan is not good, so I'm going to do my own thing. This is the psychology of sin. Well, verses 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. That's not a transgender verse. Okay. Read on. For all are one in Christ Jesus. It's talking about our status. When it comes to our status, your Jewishness, your Gentileness, your maleness, your femaleness, your slaveness, if that's a word, your freeness, doesn't matter. It's not saying these things don't exist. They exist objectively. But there is they're irrelevant to your status with God when it comes to your salvation. For if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's heir, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So remember it said, Christ is the ultimate offspring. Through Christ, now you become the offspring because your life becomes inextricably linked with Christ's. This is why the Bible says we are in Christ. Otherwise, that sounds weird, in Christ. How does that work? Because your life is inextricably linked to Christ. His life literally is yours, and you are in him. By the way, that's, that's incredible security right there. Okay, you're like, ah, oh, maybe he's forgotten me. It's not your efforts. Maybe, maybe I'm not a, really a Christian. Look, you are in Christ. This is where your assurance comes from. When your assurance drops, it's because you're trusting in yourself. But in Christ, this is, this is ultimate assurance that you are Christ's child. Faith in God is the universal gospel. Remember that. Faith in God is the universal gospel. So if you skip forward to chapter four, verse six, what is the response? And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because Christ has entered into us and we have entered into Christ, the spirit of Christ lives in us and we are positionally in Christ. We can now address the father, not as one to whom we are estranged, but as Abba, as daddy, 
father. This is the intimacy of the relationship. This is where good theology leads. Good theology leads to relationship. It leads to life. It it leads to perspective. And it leads to worship. Old style preachers used to put it this way. When it comes to our salvation, God thought it. The son bought it. The spirit wrought it. Man sought it. The devil fought it. We're not it, but I've got it to the glory and honor of God. So in Christ alone, we take our stand and that's a wonderful thing. Let's continue to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and then to live lives that honor him as a response to his grace and his mercy in us and through us undeserved. 